Welcome to The Rot Focus, a podcast for rotters, newbies, and veterans, and everyone in between. We're hosted by M.A. Lee with the assistance of Remy Black and Edie Runes, all from Rotters Inc. Books. Our focus is productivity, process, craft, and tools. Each episode lasts as long as it takes to fix a quick dinner, drive a short commute, or take a brisk walk. Resources and links are in the show notes. Visit us at therightfocus.blogspot.com. Now, on to this week's episode. Stage 7 is the first of the two most important stages of the archetypal story pattern, the approach to the inmost cave. This stage sets up events and character dynamics for the crucial stage 8, the ordeal. The inmost cave is the location of the ordeal, the dark moment, the point where our protagonist comes closest to death. That could be the loss of love, of a motivating goal or dream, a job or status, an intellectual pursuit, or even physical death. We writers want to leap straight into the ordeal, but we do our readers a disservice when we don't give equal attention to the big build-up of the approach to that dark, fearsome cave. Let's get to it. Nearing the darkest deep. With Tess behind and the ordeal ahead, what is the purpose of the collection of scenes that create the approach to the inmost cave? Wow, that's a long question. And what will this Alice quotation have to do with this stage? It's very good jam, said the queen. Well, I don't want any today at any rate, said Alice. You couldn't have it if you wanted it, the queen said. The rule is jam tomorrow and jam yesterday, but never jam today. It must come sometimes to jam today, Alice objected. No, it can't, said the queen. It's jam every other day. Today isn't any other day you know. I don't understand you, said Alice. It's dreadfully confusing. And that's from Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. The approach to the inmost cave is stage seven of the archetypal story pattern. The first section of the archetypal story pattern, with its only three stages, is separation and departure. Protagonists are driven by conflict from their former existences. They then embark on journeys that will change them from collective members into individuals. The second section of the archetypal story pattern is initiation and departure. It contains six stages, just as the middle of any story contains the bulk of the story. The approach to the inmost cave is the exact center of the stages. When counting words and pages, it may not be the exact center of those, but it's the exact center of all of the stages. Remember, stories are organic with their own ebbs and flows. Through the mentor and the first threshold, stages four and five, confronting tests that distinguish allies from enemies, stage six, the protagonists have survived the initiation. They now begin the difficult yet necessary transformation stages. And no change is possible without sacrifice. Stage 7 will confirm that the protagonists have changed and changed more than enough to confront the greatest ordeal 
the rider can throw at them. The approach offers a tricksy, devious lull, a seductive resting time or temporary reward. Nostalgia is such a temporary reward. Confirmation of ongoing transformation. What does it take to confirm a transformation? An encounter with the past. The past is the protagonist's existence pre-initiation. The ordinary world will offer a temptation. After all, the ordinary world once had the protagonist caught in its snare of the safe and ordinary. Joseph Campbell's 17-stage hero's journey offers woman as temptation. In the early myths of patriarchal cultures, maybe a woman was the only temptation to offer. In modern society, the temptation is not limited to a person. Temptations are actually more powerful when they are not linked to people. Ideas are certainly more powerful than people. Status, justice, return of the loss, dominance, the ability to grasp anything ever wanted. These are the seductive temptations. When we writers can combine the conceptual temptation with the physical one, then we can snare our protagonist. One of the greatest of all temptations is the restoration of the old life. To have everything returned undamaged. To remove all memory of the lost. This is a true restoration. Without magical or supernatural intervention, such a restoration is not possible. Nostalgia, though. The fond memories of the past. This is an incomplete restoration even when we keep looking for it. Everyone has moments of nostalgia for our past lives. We writers can have our protagonist look back at their secure, ordinary worlds and remember them with fondness. Yet we also need to drive them forward into a greater challenge than any of the ones they have confronted. The Hobbits do this in Tolkien's Ring trilogy. The memories of their lives in the Shire increase their determination not only to continue their quest, but also to keep that blissfully ignorant world safe. Another way to tempt the protagonist is to offer the return of the erstwhile deer. This is the very cherished deer from stages two and three, call to adventure and refusal of the call. The destruction of that cherished deer propelled our protagonist into this journey. This cherished deer no longer exists. Yet we writers can resurrect that deer both literally and figuratively. In literal, the returned deer reminds the protagonist of what they once considered a worthy treasure. To have it returned now is to have them see and reject their former perspectives. In the approach, they assess the deer as they never did before and see the flaws they previously ignored. The protagonist may still hold the deer as deer, but rejection must occur. Turning away from the former deer will cause emotional pain on both sides. The protagonists release the deer as well as their past. They hope for better in the future. The deer's failed attempt to re-ensnare the protagonist could launch another transformation in the deer. Even harder to write is the deer's steadfast rejection of any change for the protagonist 
and the deer's own self. Not changing is stagnation. The protagonist must avoid stagnant slime. In figurative, the illusion of the deer's return creates false hope for the protagonist. Just as with the deer's literal return, the nostalgia and the dream and the rejection of that old dream must recur. Yet the figurative return of the deer creates an opportunity for antagonistic tricks, another test of the protagonist's determination to achieve the treasure at the end of this quest. The old deer is again rejected for a brighter, better hope. In Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, Darcy makes his first proposal of marriage to Elizabeth in this stage seven. His proposal states all the wrong reasons that he is in love with her and none of the right ones. Love has so completely overset this introverted man's good sense that he offends her rather than wins her. He is drawn to her as the embodiment of a cherished deer, but it's a false, illusory deer. He had expected Miss Bingley to be the embodiment of his cherished deer, but that deer was destroyed when he met Elizabeth. Yet he continues to cling to the dream of a cherished deer. Elizabeth is not some intangible dream. She is a person. It's the conflict between who she is and what he wants that so oversets him. She is the dream of love, even with all the flaws that are attached to a union with her, because all those flaws crafted the person that she is. In giving Elizabeth all the wronged reasons for their marriage, Darcy forces her rejection. The rejection does not come from him, but he caused it. She cannot and will not be his dreamed-of cherished dear. She will be something much finer than that, his true love. Jam yesterday is now abandoned for the hope of jam tomorrow. Jam today? The Queen's proposition to Alice is that the goodness of the bright hope never comes to fruition. Jam today, however, is coming. Stage 9 gives the protagonist a reward. Stage 12 is returned with the elixir, the drink of the gods. Alice will get her jam. Our protagonist will achieve their goal. Changed from the original cherished deer, a dream now destroyed, this new deer is a mutated form, a truer form. The goal is achievable. The fruit is falling. The jam will be preserved. The approach serves story as it points both to the protagonist and the goals. Both are transforming. Old ways, old perspectives are abandoned and are rejected. New ideas, new motivations, will continue transforming the protagonist. Stage 7 is entitled Approach to the Inmost Cave, and I haven't even mentioned the Inmost Cave. That's because the Inmost Cave is the location of the ordeal, Stage 8. Let's explore the cave next. Entering the Cave Aldous Huxley said, Experience is not what happens to you. It is what you do with what happens to you. Spelunking means the exploration of caves. Archetypal story pattern stage seven is approach to the inmost cave. The name itself, approach, an inmost cave. 
provides clues to us writers that a multitude of caves is necessary for a protagonist's transformative journey. We've looked at the approach, the temptation of the destroyed deer resurrected to snare the protagonist away. Now we need to examine the dark cave, which lacks any light to lure the protagonist with a glitter that isn't gold. What is a cave? A cave is under the earth. Yes, I know, I am this obvious, but I have a purpose. Spelunking tools include crash helmet, boots, gloves, drinking water, food, and three independent light sources. Common inhabitants of caves include bats, which navigate by echolocation, and blind fish, who sense the tremors in the water. Most other creatures stay near the natural light sources, using the cave only for a refuge or a lair. For riders, the plural caves lets us know we are venturing deep into the dark unknown of our protagonist's psyche and our own. We writers reveal much about ourselves unknowingly in our writing, especially our first half million words and often twice beyond those. Caves, in literal fact and in our subconscious, are labyrinthine. Monsters may lurk. Who is predator? Who is prey? Who is both? Okay, enough with Miss Obvious. Here's Miss Purpose. Such caves require hard choices, and our protagonists have been deciding and discerning and distinguishing since they abandoned their ordinary worlds and embarked on their journeys. Through the test, they have delved deeply into antagonistic levels that revealed their own strengths and weaknesses. They don't know who or what the monsters are, and they fear they themselves are one of those monsters. They don't understand the means of navigation. They certainly don't have three independent light sources. What a cave isn't. A cave is not a cage. The ordinary world could have been a cage, but the protagonist escaped it. Even when the dear one of the ordinary world is returned to tempt the protagonist back, they've continued on. A cave is not a maze. It can be labyrinthine, with blocked or twisted passages. A maze, though, is a puzzle that can be easily solved. A cave will lack a minotaur, half man and half beast, waiting to devour the unwary. A maze can be an amazing walk, but a cave needs no thread to guide our Theseus-like protagonist in and out of the unlighted passages. The Inmost Cave. Joseph Campbell places the mythological ordeal in the Inmost Cave. The terminology requires a series of caves, the entrance, the journey into, the first vaulted emptiness, more passages, perhaps more caverns, and finally the deepest, darkest location. We journeyed through these first locations, didn't we? The mentor, the first threshold, the test. The series of scenes that has to do with approaching the inmost cave through that journey into the vaulted emptiness. Now, finally, we're heading down to our ordeal. Subconscious fears arise even in the most seasoned spelunker when equipment fails while exploring a new cave. The fear of being lost, of being left alone, 
the crushing weight of earth, the claustrophobia of enclosed spaces, the utter darkness that has dangers, creatures, projections, freezing water, and abysses, the complete devastation of losing the way and being forever trapped. Senses heighten in these situations. Adrenaline kicks in. Only the most stoic can hide the reactions. They still have them. No one escapes emotions, not even our protagonist. The darkness of the inmost cave, what fears plague our protagonist? Unforeshadowed fears cannot undermine our protagonist in the ordeal. Plan for them. Ibn, in 13th Warrior, suddenly announces his fear of heights as he must slide down a rope from a higher ledge into water. The audience cannot appreciate that fear. Is too sudden. Raiders of the Lost Ark left a snake in Indiana Jones's seat as he flew away from his first encounter with danger. The audience, therefore, anticipated and understood his fear when he again encounters snakes. Trapped in the pyramid with the last torch flickering out, we know he must face his fear one hundredfold. Fear is not the greatest darkness our protagonist confronts. Evil is. Personal darkness, the darkness in all of us, that's our greatest struggle. Revenge, rather than justice, is the greatest evil when facing our antagonist. What can revenge compel the protagonist to do? The villain in The Incredibles wants revenge based on an early rejection. In The Hobbit, Bilbo confronts smog, intense greed representative of the dwarf's greed and mirrored in the greed for the ring itself that Bilbo and then Frodo and Gollum must confront. Smog wants revenge. The dwarves want revenge. Bilbo avoids it. Medea is rejected, abandoned, and cast out. She kills a princess, a king, and her own children. Hamlet's father is murdered. So Hamlet kills Polonius. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, deliberately causing their deaths, is murdered even though he didn't drop the axe. He finally double murders his target, Claudius. Ophelia, Laertes, and Gertrude are also killed in the maelstrom of his revenge. Revenge has unintended consequences. How many heroes contend with villains motivated solely by revenge? Every crime, terroristic act, and war, all are started by revenge. Remember that, as you prepare the protagonist ordeal. The ordeal is the greatest suspenseful moment and the darkest action of the archetypal story pattern. It occurs about the 75% mark of the story. Everything has built to this apex. It is the crisis, not the climax. The road back and the resurrection of the evil, stages 10 and 11, are still to come. How can the ordeal see the difficulties in these two stages? Gertie said, Kindness is the golden chain by which society is bound together. Revenge isn't kind. Remember that. The ordeal will be all-out hatred. What do writers want to know about plot? What do writers need to know about plot? The right focus is taking a comprehensive view of plot, the structure that develops characters, genre expectations, 
major story structures, pacing, tension, suspense. We cover it all in this series entitled Discovering Your Plot from M.A. Lee's Guidebook of the Same Name. Writers will discover unexpected insights and methods that deepen their understanding of this major craft in the storytelling world. Thanks for listening to The Right Focus, a podcast for writers at all levels, hosted by M.A. Lee from Writers, Inc. Books, assisted by Remy Black and Edie Runes. Our focus is productivity, process, craft, and tools. Music is licensed through Audio Jungle called Background Music Loop. Its creator is Alexander Polishchuk, known on Audio Jungle as Plastic 3. The music comes in different iterations. Show notes and resource links for this and other episodes can be found at therightfocus.blogspot.com. Write to us at winkbooks at aol.com when you have questions, comments, and speculations. We will try to answer you as quickly as possible. By the way, we will not mind your email address. That's rude. If you find value in our content, share with your writing friends or write a review. We're small beans here without the advertising budget of the big peeps, and you can make a difference. And whatever occurs, right on.